Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So we've got some big issues to uh, sort through this week, Connor. A lot of people are going to be very interested in this. Uh, Number one, should the government mandate a 32-hour work week? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that hey, sorry, be boss, fun? I'd like to yeah, work more, yeah, but yeah. the legislature says 32 hours is it. It's kind of a Democrat gift to the voters, but we'll get Interesting. into Interesting. Yeah. Second question, kind of, kind of a similar theme. Should voting be mandatory? Mm-hmm. It's not mandatory here in America. It is in a bunch of countries overseas. I guess they kind of like it. But some people are saying, Democrats, let's make everybody vote. And they, they don't think there'll be any partisan effect. They just, you know, want fo- folks to uh, participate in the joys of democracy. Mm-hmm. And third and finally, should Johnny Depp be suing his ex for defamation? Is this a, a smart move by the Pirate of the Caribbean? So we'll get into all three of those topics. Before we get to the big questions, though, a little preview of our two special features at the end of the podcast. Uh, Guess the Verdict, America's favorite game show. I'm going to give Connor the facts of a case. The case is called The Case of the World's Noisiest Library. And Connor's going to have to guess who wins and who loses Hmm. this legal fight. And our other feature, Stories I'd Tell My Friends If I Had Any. To clarify, I have several stories. So this week, I'm going to tell you about my close encounter with O.J. Simpson... And Connor is going to tell you about his uh, recent uh, trial experience, and he calls it the case of the juror with the severed foot. So these uh, these uh, await you at the end of the podcast. So before we get to the uh, yippee 32-hour work week, a couple of uh, sort of miscellaneous human interest legal issues. Uh, recently, Connor, a um, an Indiana cop, uh, gave uh, a perp, a alleged perpetrator, a choice. You can go to jail for marijuana possession, or you can get baptized. Now, since this is Easter Sunday, I think it's appropriate that we yeah. uh, we talk religion here. What a great, t- yeah, what a great sacred yeah, Easter Sunday. Saudi, Saudi Lake, Indiana, Deputy Daniel, Daniel Wilkie, he found grass in a car during a traffic stop. He handcuffs the lady. Then he talks with her about religion for 30 minutes. 
Uh, he says that if, if she'll just get baptized, he just he'll write a little citation. There will be no jail time. The stop was in front of her ex-mother-in-law's house. And the deputy goes into the house and asks for towels to be used in the course of the baptism. The deputy strips down to his skivvies. Uh, he submerges her into water while holding her with one hand on her back and the other on her front. Uh, this was filmed. Um, they were in the water for about a minute, 20 seconds. She's now filed a lawsuit. What do you think? Uh, what do you think her chances are? Connor? Well, her chances are bad because she's dead now. So the store, the entire uh, period of the that story. That does change the it picture. It does change her, her, her civil case somewhat. Uh, Some causes of action survive death. Others don't. That's true. She uh, is pulled over. And during this uh, routine traffic stop for uh, for some sort of uh, infraction, it's used as a pretense, uh, a pretext rather, uh, to search for drugs. Uh, marijuana is found in her car, uh, at which point uh, the officer and his uh, co-officer uh, hold her, um, uh, which you know, almost certainly would be against uh, her you know, civil rights, violating in violation of her civil rights for a long period of time because you can't just hold somebody uh, for no reason. Um, and they also uh, threaten her with a religious ritual uh, and and coerce her and say, basically, your life is ruined and you'll be facing criminal charges unless you submit to this religious ritual. Uh, one of the most bizarre, you know, uh, things you can you can imagine. This officer specifically had been the subject of numerous tens uh, and uh, of uh, of disciplinary complaints for yeah. violation of including uh, violation charges of, of rape and assault. Yeah. So just awful, terrible stuff. And of course, the idea of a religious ritual ritual that involves people getting in their underwear uh, for it is totally in violation of her rights, whether or not it was assault. It sounds like sexual assault to me. Well, we know the me. deputy got into his skivvies. I'm right. not sure about her. And so they end up underwater and they end up doing this. She brings this lawsuit and following the lawsuit, uh, she ends up dead. And I've heard nothing about her cause of death. Apparently that hasn't it's been, been reported. It has not yet been reported. Right. It is, it is undeter- undetermined by the coroner's office who are Friends of the cops. Interesting. So, yeah, this is uh, this is uh, one of those cases of a of a horrific violation of somebody's civil rights and very suspicious circumstances uh, surrounding, you know, when you file a lawsuit against uh, a police officer, uh, then you've got a fear for your life. Fantastic. This is great, because why is this the case? It is the case because. Our conception of police officers as the 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 arbiters of violence, the people who inflict violence on the population uh, in the name of whatever goal it is you decide police are supposed to do. There's about 50 goals. If you ask 50 people on the street, what do the cops do? They're going to answer with 50 different things. And the answer really is they are simply an armed presence that exerts violence. But in fairness to Deputy Skivvies, we don't know that he killed her. We don't know that he killed her. I'm saying at the circus. Circumstances are very suspicious, and everybody out there is justifiably afraid of this officer and other police officers because the job attracts the wrong kind of person. The kind of person who wants to be a police officer more often than not is the kind of person who shouldn't be. It's like how the only people who ever end up being president should definitely not be allowed to be president, right? That is uh, one of our problems with this, the system. And when you have a job that says, hey, you don't need to be that educated, you don't need to be that smart, you don't need to be otherwise, you know, successful and and, and have, you know, uh, be, be reputable in your community and have people already trust you, you can just show up and we'll give you a gun and send you through like six weeks of training and then we'll 
pay you to hurt people. And guess what? That job attracts terrible people. And so, you end up with a police force full of bad apples that ruin the whole bunch. So you mentioned that you know we shouldn't have anybody as president who wants to be president. Right. You, you've heard my opinion about lie detector tests for jurors. Yeah. Maybe you'd get behind the idea of giving a lie detector test to every presidential candidate. And if it turns out the truth is yeah. they want to be president, yeah. then we don't let them run. So then we'd only let run the people who don't want. So we're I, basically conscripting them yeah. to run. I think uh, maybe we this have, is not a practical idea. I think we should have portable lie detector tests attached to everyone's belt all the time. And therefore, there will never be any lying and no falsehoods. In the future, I think that's that's what it's we're coming. Yeah, when yeah. Siri will speak up and say that was a lie. Whenever she hears anything that was a, a disallowed life, uh, uh, libelous or or lie that she uh, she hears just from your belt. How smart is that? That's brilliant. So uh, next miscellaneous topic here. Uh, should a beard ban in the military be permitted? There's a Marine artillery captain named Sukbir Singh Tour. Uh, he has been on a mission over the last year to become the first Sikh in the U.S. Marine Corps to openly practice his religion while in uniform. He's won a string of victories against the dressed uh, standards of the Marine Corps, and he can now wear the beard, long hair, and turban uh, while on duty. But recently, the Marine Corps dug in. They refused to allow him or any other Sikh to wear a beard on a combat deployment or during boot camp, and so that's still a little bit up in the air. Sort of the related question is, um, there's a Norse heathen who wanted the right to wear his beard Love in it. the U.S. military, and so that has uh, raised a legal issue. Uh, his name uh, is Staff Sergeant Garrett Sopchak. Um, he believes in the old North mythology of Odin, Thor, and Ragnarok, he, so he's officially become a Norse heathen, and Norse heathens have to wear beards all the time. Sure. Yeah, so he got approval to wear a beard uh, from, the, uh, from the Air Force. He says that um, the heathen religion really feels very real to him. Uh, in addition to believing in the old Norse gods, heathens believe that they are uh, they are descended from them. He was originally a Baptist, but hasn't, hasn't wasn't for him. Hasn't followed Not that for beards. a long time. Sure. Yeah. So, what's your reaction, Connor? You think we should be uh, coddling these uh, religious uh, predilections? <laughs> these snowflakes. Uh, mm -hmm. look, the the military has lots of rules about conformity. Your body's got to look a certain way. Uh, your actions have to be a certain specific way. Um, your words have to be a certain specific way. They have codes of conduct and decorum and uh, ethical rules and, and behavioral rules and, and physical appearance rules. And these are all in service of several things. Bunch of goals, goals like a unified fighting force where you and your your comrades look around at one another and see, oh, we're all on the same team. We're all similar. We're all, you know, cut from the same cloth. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we can trust one another. You have to uh, drum the individuality out of people in order for them to be a cohesive military unit where they're basically going to lay down their lives right. based on a, a, an officer's yeah. order. Yeah, and there are also, yeah, there, there are also uh, people who will tell you the psychological effects of conformity lead to people following orders without questioning them better. I mean, you you need somebody to take a human life. And when you need people to take human lives or do other things that out of uh, other contexts would appear to be unconscionable violence, that or requires, put their own life at risk. Sure. Uh, that requires them to uh, you know, have a degree of psychological conformity pounded into them. And that is uh, the goal. Of course, the Marine Corps as an institution would likely want everyone to be completely cloned and duplicated and st stripped of all individuality. But in reality, we have other competing factors in addition to, well, combat effectiveness uh, uh, being a factor. You can also say 
Well, the rights of the individuals who have signed up for this volunteer force should be taken into account. For example, if you have a Muslim soldier who needs to pray multiple times a day, circumstances allowing, because the religion, of course, allows for extreme circumstances uh, to make exception, but circumstances allowing, they need to be given the time and space and, and, and everything else to do that in the same way that, you know, Christians need the time to say grace before a meal or whatever other kind of a religious expression uh, they need to have or service on Sundays or something like that. And that it not only vindicates the individual's rights and, and protects them, uh, but it's going to make your fighting force mo- more cohesive anyway, because these people are going to be saying, I'm going to be fighting for a country, for an idea, for a concept that I believe in, that creates the world I want to live in. And if you if, if the requirement to be in the military is some starship troopers level insane, you know, uh, conformity, crush every bit of individual individuality out of you, you don't matter, you're a cockroach, uh, get out there and fight, then Darn it, our fighting forces are going to be neutered by that. So final uh, preliminary topic here. We've got kind of a theme show here, religion and um, and military preparedness and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, student loans are being forgiven. And some people are saying, uh, if we forgive student loans, then doggone it, uh, these yeah. folks aren't, oh, uh, yeah. aren't going to be joining the military. Boom. If you uh, have big, gigantic yeah. student loan issues, and then are we going to have a sufficient volunteer army? What's your take this on that? Is, 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 it comes from my Wall Street Journal op-ed that said Democrats aren't thinking through, the left is not thinking through the eventual outcomes of a student loan forgiveness plan. And the subheading of the Wall Street Journal op-ed where they just come out and say it is we're not going to have enough people in the military who volunteer if we, uh, you know, if we forgive student loans, which is just saying the quiet part out loud that the poors need to die for us. And also it's you know, acknowledging the reality that that most of the time when people go into the military, it's because our society places enormous financial and socioeconomic pressure on them. It is a ladder out of the socioeconomic strata that their parents uh, were born in and they were born in. And we do not have the social mobility that we want in this country that would make our country, you know, per- a more perfect union. We do not have the equal equality of opportunity. And sometimes you got to go get shot or shot at, at least, in order to get out of the spot you were born in, the socioeconomic strata you were born in. And it's a horrifying reality. And we should instead be rejiggering our minds. We should change our perspective about military service and think, why do we want a fighting a volunteer fighting force? Why do we want people to be there? We want them to be there because they love the country. They love the values. They love the idea of protecting um, themselves and, and each other and their families and their friends and, and everybody else. And they're willing to do it and w- risk their lives for benefit. And of course, they should get paid would a lot be, of money to do it. Would you be comfortable, though, uh, with a draft, going to a draft, if we say, OK, we really do need X folks in the military and we forgive everybody's student loans and we don't have enough, we don't have X in the military, right. would you be OK with going to the draft as opposed to uh, uh, sticking with the volunteer army? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that... Uh, Mandatory military service, which lots of countries have, even countries who aren't actively at war or in that much war, because every Western country, you know, that is part of sort of the Western cultural hegemony is constantly at war, but like, and in the Eastern too. They have mandatory military service. And for a lot of uh, societies, it's not that bad or disruptive, right? If you have South Korea, for example, they have mandatory military service. Greece has mandatory military service. Uh, These countries have 
Uh, probably the majority of countries in the in the world have mandatory military service. And because they're not actively at, at war, it's a lot like, you know, having to go and, you know, serve your country and uh, put in your 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 skin in the game and then, you know, uh, make the make the world a better place. That's not bad in theory, like big picture. I'm not one of these like don't don't tread on me. Uh, you know, we don't owe anybody any anything. I actually am hard on the side of. We do owe each other more, right? I'm as a progressive, uh, a liberal, uh, a filthy commie leftist. I'm linking <laughs> arms with people and saying, "I owe you something. You owe me something. We will build something that is better than the sum of our parts together." I'm not one of these like every man is an island. Uh, you know, government don't tread on me. Get out of my house and and let me live my life and exploit my employees the way I want to or whatever. I mean, that's not who I am. I'm you know politically on this end of the spectrum. On the other hand. I see that implementations of mandatory military service, when you are part of a global military industrial hegemonic power like the United States, involve uh, conscripting people and forcing them against their will to go to other countries and kill people for a cause they don't believe in. And that is a horrifying reality. So there's no easy answer to, well, how much can society ask of the individual if society is itself broken, right? If you need to, uh, you know, if you're if you're Muhammad Ali, it, you might not just not want to go to Vietnam because you disagree with the politics or, uh, you know, uh, don't want to die personally. But you might, you know, have real concerns about what your country is doing to people at home and abroad. And sure, the numbers of people in a country where you have a draft are large, right? Everybody's mandatory military service. You're going to have a big army. But our problem in America is not how many people there are to throw into the enemy's cannon, right? That's not where it's no longer how we fight wars. It's no longer how we measure military power. We have a massive standing army. Uh, China has a, an ungodly, incredibly massive standing army. But that's, again, not how we measure their, their power, their military might, right? We don't have any boots on the ground in Ukraine, but we're fighting a war in Ukraine right now. I mean, so, so the notion of a draft, while it's an interesting moral question about how much society can ask of one uh, of all of us, one or all of us, um, it, to me, there's no answer of, well, is a, is a draft morally okay or defensible? Generally, drafts are instituted when there's an existential threat, right? A threat that is so substantial that, you know, the the the, the, the Canadians are coming across the border, right? That's They're, why Elvis was drafted in 1958. Absolutely. Wait a minute. Canadians were, a were minute. invaded. <laughs> Maybe. And, and, you know, when there's an existential threat, Morality changes, right? The, the morality is dependent on the circumstance. Well, so, you're right, Connor. Not not an easy answer here, but if there were an easy answer, it, it wouldn't be a podcast topic, right? It wouldn't be a good podcast. So when we come back, should the government mandate a 32-hour work week? I can just sense people salivating already. But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, check us out on your podcast platform of choice. That's usually Apple Podcasts because everybody out there has an iPhone. But if you're like me and a filthy green check Android user, uh, you've got to uh, you know trudge your way to the Google Play Store and pick up your iPhone, uh, your podcast uh, uh, player of choice like Stitcher or Spotify or Podcast Addict. That's my favorite. Uh, whatever platform it is that you use, though, uh, leave us a review. We need reviews and comments and subscriptions on all the platforms. Uh, and so uh, we really appreciate it. We'll be right back. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Thomas. So the big question now is, should the government, the California legislature up in Sacramento, mandate a 32-hour work week? And I know what everybody's thinking. My goodness, that sounds fantastic. It I, does. First, I don't, e- I don't even have to go into the office. Right. And now, I only have to work 32 hours from home. Yeah. What could be nicer? So it's AB 2932. It would change the work week from five days to four. So after you work four days at eight hours per day, 32 hours hours, then if you keep working, as you may well, then any hours over that would be an overtime pay, time and a half. So it's not really a mandatory four and a half day work week, you know, take off Friday, go to Palm Springs. It's a raise, the difference between regular pay and overtime pay for those eight hours a week you uh, you work. So it's basically a 10% raise. It's a gift. It's a, well, the cynic would say it's a purchase of votes. Now, overtime laws, of course, are legal, and hours do change over the decades and centuries. But to me, Connor, that's kind of the point. Uh, Societal trends change slowly. They reflect increases in productivity and automation so that if an employer wants a worker to work more than the, the typical time, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week, it's reasonable to pay the employees more. And in fact, since 1938, the federal law has been eight hours a day. But if you work more, it's it's a time and a half for overtime. But, I mean, this isn't really what Sacramento's thinking about. It isn't a recognition of gradual change by society and productivity. I think it's just a huge gift. I, I wonder if a court challenge would be filed and, and whether it, uh, it would work. Court challenges absolutely would be filed if this were to go through. It's not going to go through. Um, it, this is a very fringe idea um, because what we have in this country uh, in, in, in the past, in, in American history, in the last 200 years, is a we had a, a semi-robust uh, labor uh, movement that began and pushed back against the interests of capital and said, oh, crap, we are getting exploited brutally here. We need some protections. We need uh, to establish things like the five-day work week and two-day weekend. Uh, the labor movement uh, in the United States said uh, we're going to uh, push for and then achieved a 40 hour work week. And those uh, and then the concept of a minimum wage, for example, and overtime pay and all the rules about how many breaks you need and how much uh, time and a half you get paid uh, post the official, you know, 40 hours in a week or, you know, more than 16 hours in two days or whatever the, the laws are specifically. Um, and those uh, achievements, when you uh, have a powerful labor movement that achieves those, then there resurges the power of capital who politically campaigns and propagandizes and fights it. And then you get 
calcified. You get frozen. And we got frozen in ice. And the, the charts are, are pretty shocking. Here, I'll whip the chart around uh, so that you could see it. But this is a chart I'll describe for the listener of the productivity of the American worker from 1948 to now, 2020, actually. And the, it shows that the productivity of the American worker rises dramatically and wages, uh, the lower blue line, track uh, that productivity rise almost exactly. And then right around in 1978, in the middle of this uh, this this pushback, the, mm-hmm. the conservative pushback, what happened after 1978? Oh, well, Ronald Reagan comes into office, right? The conservative, you know, revolution takes back over American politics. We we become much more conservative and economically, you know, minded and and zoom out and pro business um, and uh, anti labor. And the productivity of the American worker continues unabated at yeah. a 45 degree angle upwards. Very and steep climb. Our productivity um, at, at this moment compared to 1978, the average worker's productivity is 155% of what it was in 1978. Wow. The average worker's pay is 117%. Interesting. Now, That's I wonder- what people call the pay gap, yeah, the but, pay productivity right. gap, but you 155 to 117%. Yeah, but you mentioned 1978. I, I mean, since then, isn't that the period when we've seen the unparalleled technological advances. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so it's thanks to Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and so on. So the American, it's not like the American worker got, you know, tougher and more muscular it, and, well, and the American, accomplished more in that hour that they worked. You'll notice it was American, technology. Well, but it's not like that's t- the American worker's fault, but also look at the productivity no. trend. The productivity trend starting in 1948 here at the bottom of the chart, it continues unabated. It's basically a 45 degree angle line upward. We were always getting more and more productive as as technology and other advances and yeah business innovations corporations got bigger and more efficient they figured stuff out it was not just the american worker it's not like we give them credit for getting more it's also big business and capital figuring out how better to be efficient and exploit the, the workers labor absolutely it's a team effort of, of getting more and more productive but the issue is that our productivity has gone up unabated for the last 70 80 years on this chart here the single chart that encapsulates basically everything but our pay has not And so, yeah, you should be thinking, well, you can either change a minimum wage law so that more people are covered by the minimum wage law and more people's uh, more productive now. Like I'm I now as an American worker, I am more productive by a factor of 50 percent than a worker in 1978. So I should be getting paid by a, more by a factor of 50% in the same way that 1978 workers were more productive by a factor of 50% than ni- the workers in 1948. Shouldn't you be paid they, based on the market system? Well, why? My, based my on labor supply has, and demand? My labor has value, right? I mean, this is a different conception. Yeah, of, but only based on the laws of supply and demand. If everybody else works the same, uh, as hard as Connor, then, you know, every all those folks will be paid a certain wage. Well, but if, if somebody works harder than you and accomplish, accomplishes more, then, then employers will pay more. Yes, right? of course. But because I'm a more productive worker, I'm cranking out 50% more widgets, right? Those widgets go to market and they get sold. Right. The, the employer makes more money. I should, by the the laws of the market system, I should be therefore more valuable as a worker and be getting paid 50% more in order to keep me or I'll go to a competitor. But instead, the market system is an inadequate measure of productivity and more money has in the last 60, 70, 80 years, since 1978, the period of time, uh, gone into the pockets of capital and less into the pockets of uh, labor who are you know doing the work. This This... Issue creates this this pay gap. We're creating more widgets, more and more widgets every year, and we were creating more and more widgets every year between 1958 and 1978. And so we should be 
getting compensated for that increase of productivity. But instead, we could do like this uh, law does and say, let's change society. Let's change societal norms and say the 32-hour week work week is the default. Now, you're right that if people keep working 40 hours a week, then it is just a pay raise, which is the first solution, right? Paying labor more to compensate them for their increased productivity because they're doing more work and creating more value. But instead, if we change society... In the same way that the labor movement changed the society and said, no, 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 instead of working seven hour, seven days a week, you just work five. We, we, didn't ju- we didn't just say, if you work seven days a week, you'll get paid more. We changed the default. We changed the norm and said, you go home after five days, take two days off, right? You go home after eight hours, take the rest of the day off. If we change the norms... And we reflect that. I mean, 32 hours to, to 40 hours is only, what, a 20% drop, right? That's a, that's an eight hour, yeah, 20% decrease uh, in the number of hours worked. But the productivity is, a gap is, you know, 35%. Well, I'll say this. Um, I'm a fan of the market system and, yeah. and the job creators. But because you're my son, I want you to get a gigantic raise. I appreciate so that. So I'm, I'm on record saying that. that. But, I, it, but it really, like, shouldn't we be sitting around and eating grapes and bonbons? Right? Like, if we're, if we're more productive, if if we with the if, if you and I could make a podcast every week in forty five minutes instead of an hour, and somehow it would satisfy the viewer for for an hour of uh, of enjoyment, the listener for an hour of enjoyment, yeah. well, I would say yeah. If the market system decrees that we have free time and bonbons, right. yeah. But here's my problem with the law: I think it's totally unfair to uh, to have a thirty two hour work week. Unfair to thousands of businesses who maybe are just getting by, especially after COVID and, and enormous inflation, to suddenly say, okay, give 10% more to employees. What's going to happen? First, companies are going to go out of business. Companies will fire people. Companies won't hire new people. If you really want to give a gift, I don't think you should punish businesses that are working hard but barely keeping their head above water. Just send out more checks, you know, like we did during COVID. That way, everybody shares in the cost, not just businesses that don't deserve to be punished and they're made to pay for what is affect a Democrat politician's gift, essentially a vote bribe. I mean, let's be honest. That's what's what the Democrats want to do is tell everybody in California, we just gave you a 10% raise. It's a 32-hour work week. Vote for Democrats. That's what's going on. I mean, the idea of doing the right thing in politics and then being able to go to your voters and say, hey, we did a good thing that made your lives better, made society better. If it's the right thing, you're yeah. right. And, there's there's and a when big you, if there. When you have more productivity, then you have to, uh, you have to work fewer hours. We If we could if I could snap my fingers and do my whole job in 20 hours a week, you, I could then either take on and do a second job or I could have 20 hours of free time. And if I've got enough money coming in, most human beings, if they look around and they say, well, ignoring the fact that, like, I am on a constant capitalist treadmill where I have to, like, work seven jobs in order to ever afford a house. If I was just, like, thinking this week, would I take on, and I couldn't save the money at the, at the end of the bit, I could just spend it on stuff, I'd probably take 20 hours of free time and 20 hours of working, uh, you know, and getting twice as much done in those 20 hours, right? We should reformulate the default settings, the norms, change our mindset so that we recognize as productivity and technology advance so that we have to work less in order to keep everybody happy and and alive and fed and, you know, watching the movies we we write and create and shoot and eating the the delicious food at restaurants. We if we could do all that in half the time, should we be all forced to get a second side hustle and be double productive? Because that's where we're headed. Well, I'll say this, Connor. 
if AOC wins the presidency in 2024, because she will be eligible at age 35, you may, you may just get your wish. It's, I will be her chief of staff. Very possible. Hey, when we come back, should voting be mandatory? Stick with Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. That's not too many lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, should voting be mandatory? Should you go to prison if you don't vote? Uh, to me, it's a blatantly political motivation here, but let's let's talk about it for a minute. There was an LA Times column recently by a guy named Mark Barabak. He's arguing for mandatory voting. He points out two dozen countries around the world do it. It's kind of like jury service. We want a, a representative slice of people on the jury, not just people who want to be on a jury. So we say, you got to be on the jury. Uh, what the people who argue for mandatory voting say is we should have a $20 fine. Now, that's, you know, that's not a felony, but it would, would have an impact. Yeah. The the defense, which I think is kind of lame uh, for this, is to say, uh, well, you know, it, this isn't a political thing. The, the, the columnist says, as for the notion that higher turnout necessarily benefits Democrats, well, look at the November election in Virginia recently where a surge in turnout helped lift Republicans. That's supposed to convince us that mandatory voting isn't a Democrat tactic. I mean, the fact that in one election, in one state, the GOP happened to be more energized than the Democrats is totally irrelevant. The question would be, what's the overall effect of mandatory voting? And it would be a huge win for the Democrats. Let me give you a couple of stats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whites vote to the tune of 60%. Blacks vote 51% of the population. Hispanics, 27% of Hispanics vote. Uh, Over 65 folks, 67% vote. If you're under 45, 48%. If you're a 18 to 24, just 33% of you vote. Back in the 2020 presidential election, two-thirds of Americans voted. Uh, Homeowners, 62%. Renters, 36%. Income over 50 grand, 70% voted. Income under 10,000, just 33% voted. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that if you slice up the demographic demographic groups and study who tends to vote Democrat and who right. votes to Republican, it's the people who vote less who tend to vote more for uh, for the uh, Democrats. For the Democrats. So, I mean, to me, it's is sort of a blatantly political move we're talking about. I mean, wh- anything can be construed as a blatantly political move, and I'm sure that the Democratic politicians who want to make man- a Democratic uh, to make democracy mandatory, uh, to make voting mandatory, are are thinking to themselves, this is going to Im- improve the Democrats' voting share. Uh, it will absolutely do that. I, mean, I don't think anyone is arguing that that is, is not the case. But 
it, it is the reality and, you know, is reasonably arguing but, uh, that that is, is not the case. The reality, though, is that there you can do something that makes society better, makes the world a better place, makes our democracy function better and have it increase representation of uh, Democrats. Like, for example, if you change the gerrymandering laws to stop, you know, tiny minorities uh, from uh, from it, uh, from, you know, having an unfair and disproportionate advantage in voting in in having drawn districts so that they have more representatives than they should based on percentage, uh, then that would make democracy work better. Now, we don't have great solutions for that. Gerrymandering is a really hard problem to solve because somebody's got to draw the lines. But you could easily look at this and say there are many places where it would advantage Democrats to do that. But it wouldn't make it a political move or a bad move to do it. There are also places where it would advantage uh, Republicans. But big picture, I mean, the argument that our current system, any arguments against change are, are, in fact, arguments for the status quo, right? That is sort of the conservative versus progressive notion. Do we want to change something or we want to keep it the same? As we look at the world right now, it's rich, old, white people voting more than the opposite, right? Is that good? Is that a status quo we should fight for? Why? Like, shouldn't we be making moves, making political change? You don't think there's a value to just having society? people vote who want to vote? Well, that's a totally separate question. That's a totally separate question that go, that, that assumes— How can it be separate? We're talking about mandatory voting here. It, it assumes that people, in some abstract, vague sense, are the kind of person who votes or wants to vote— or whatever, and that's why they're currently voting. Instead of thinking about what are all the reasons why people don't vote, well, maybe they they don't vote because they don't see that their vote has an impact because they are they fall victim to the totally real you know psychological effect of see, of attempting to vote for something and getting shot down over and Is over. Is that what over eighteen to twenty four uh, kids? Uh, yeah, believe? my vote doesn't. My matter. vote doesn't matter. I'm not going to change. But suddenly, anything. when they're twenty five to thirty nine, they think it does matter. Yeah, because they're richer. And they, you know, have have, have seen the impact that they have. They, more experience. They, yeah. They more f- common sense. Well, they may be more, more intelligent, more arrogant. Yeah. That, that they know better because they've been around longer. I mean, there are all these psychological effects that that, that cause. also not to mention the practical effects of, well, why don't black and brown people vote? I don't know, because they work way more hours than white people do. They work way more they have more multiple jobs they work more hours at those jobs they're busier people they have less free time to sit around and consume political media that shouts at them to go vote or to become informed and you know feel that they are part of the sort of political leisure class that has opinions that are worthy when society when they look on tv and they see that all the pundits and all the politicians don't look like them and don't don't have the kind of money that they have they have astronomically more money and different kinds of jobs and education and everything else they might well fall victim to these same psychological effects that say voting's not for me but to argue that the current system where old rich white people vote more than all uh, every other kind of person is inherently good because they're the you know politically informed people are going out and doing the voting and people who want to vote are the ones who uh, go out and do the voting uh, that is to fall victim to the idea that the status quo is just inherently better it's the idea that 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 currently people uh, all the smart people are voting or all the informed people are voting and, and that's just not the case it, it, it's the case that rich people have more free time it's the case that older people have more free time it's the ri- case that rich and, and older uh, and whiter people have more connections uh, into politics and to business where they are feel that they are more invested in and have a right to uh, speak to politics. And these are all psychological effects we should overcome. We should change. We should make the world a better, more uh, democratic place by bringing more people into the political tent. And 
you never know, there may arise a better, healthier political party that brings people into its, you know, big, beautiful tent. If only we got all these voters on on the ta- you know into, into the game, but instead it's this calcified system where all you know the far left and the far right are incensed uh, by, and enraged by each other, and everybody else is sort of in the middle and frightened and shouted at and hates the whole process. And maybe if you can get people engaged in it, I don't think be that people in the middle voters. get, get uh, screamed at. I think it's the people on the extremes. That's 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 probably true. And you know, I, I'm just offering a hypothetical scenario here. I don't even know that mandatory voting is a good thing, right? I would probably support that bill. But I would want to hear good arguments from both sides for and against it. But the idea of changing the status quo to make you know the, our society more democratic and make the world a better place by getting more people involved in in uh, you know having a stake in politics that sounds pretty good to me. Well, I have a feeling that the chances that it'll get passed are really slim. Even in filthy commie California, yeah. It, well, yeah, I don't know that they would be able to do it here. They're talking about doing it on a national basis, but uh, I think politically it may be. D-O-A. Hey, uh, we blabbed so much, we're going to have to talk about Johnny Depp next week. But we do have time, Connor, for our special features, first of which is Guess the Verdict. Are you ready for your challenge? Always. All right. As I mentioned, this is the case of the world's noisiest library. I'm going to give Connor the real life facts of a case, and we'll see if you guess the outcome. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Western Music Radio Station KNYG-FM in Fort Worth, Texas, announces, Connor, it has hidden $5 and $10 bills in the fiction book section of the Fort Worth Library. 400 people descend upon the library, tossing 3,000 books onto the floor. Can you imagine Moby Dick flying through the air looking for for Alexander Hamilton? The The station claims it just wanted to improve library usage. That's all we really cared about. So the library, which is totally destroyed, uh, is suing the radio station. Uh, Connor, uh, how do you think this uh, Titanic legal battle turned out? (laughs) Well, given how the American uh, political and and justice system uh, treats and funds libraries, I can't imagine that they really care too much about them. But I will say that in this specific uh, scenario, uh, it sounds like a, a totally foreseeable um, bad outcome think? that could come <laughs> from telling people there's gold in them, our hills, there's money hidden in those library books. You think people are just going to wait until they stroll down the the aisles? Bert, you check Little Women. I'll get War and Peace. And see, that's the problem. Instead of just, well, when I check out War and Peace, oh, it's nice $5. How nice that someone left this in here. No, instead, of course, people are going to tear it apart because you said the words free money. So yeah, I think the radio station should have to pay to clean up the library. You're absolutely right. And yes. it's a $10,000 win for Woo. the library. You know, it's will buy you some books. It's interesting to compare this uh, this dispute with a couple of things that have happened in, in uh, American legal history. Back in the 1960s in Los Angeles, uh, the top rock and roll uh, radio station was KHJ. And if you watch, uh, watch the Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, Once Upon a Time, in Hollywood, oh, yeah. uh, they celebrated the the uh, boss jocks, Robert W. Morgan and real Don Steele and so on. So the KHJ marketers came up with an idea, Connor. They announced on the air, hey, the first listener 
to get to the corner of Roscoe and Topanga Canyon Boulevards in Canoga Park and the West San Fernando Valley will win $100. Oh, my God. Well, you can imagine guys in souped-up Corvettes in Van Nuys <laughs> that were headed east just turned that puppy around and made a beeline for the corner of Roscoe and Topanga. Oh, no. And people from all over the valley, uh, of course, there was a crash and of there was course. a horrendous accident and somebody died. Of course. And RKO, KHJ, as I recall, lost big time. I bet. Yeah. You yeah. can't tell people, engage in unauthorized street racing for $100. Yeah. Well, uh, you say you can't, but now let's fast forward to just this month. Yeah. I read about a big race from San Antonio, Texas to Las Vegas. And it's kind of an overnight thing if you huh. just drive it right through. And the, the deal is the first person to get from San Antonio to Las Vegas in a beater, a like less than $2,000 vehicle is the rule. You have to right. have an old beat up thing that's you know, probably going to break down, yeah, makes yeah, it yeah. more interesting. The first person who gets there, you know, a big Vegas blowout, huge cash prizes and so on. And 140 miles an hour is what one guy was clocked oh at. Oh, my God. And what, they, what the organizers, to try to immunize themselves, did, they said, oh, if you get a ticket for speeding, then you're ineligible. You can't win the race. Oh, so that's, that's going to prevent yeah, lawsuits. 140 miles an hour? Insanity. They're even making jokes about how the lawyers say we shouldn't call it a contest. It's just sort of an exhibition or something. I mean, why in the world wouldn't the idiots who devise so this so dumb. race say to themselves, we're going to get, we're going to lose every penny we've yeah. ever had. Our yeah. heirs are going to lose every penny yeah. they make. So dumb. Yeah, so it's, it's just totally I mean, insane. It, it is totally insane. You, you, we live in a society defined by cars. Of course, I mean, this specifically and explicitly calls out get there via car in this kind of car. That's even worse. But if even if you just say arrive at the corner of so-and-so, you know, people are going to drive. Of course, they're going to drive. Yep. Yeah. There's no other way. There's no way around it. Now, the 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 other uh, uh, question uh, I have is what if you just have a, a, a fire sale? You, you, you own Bob's Discount Furniture, mm-hmm. uh, and you say, uh, we're selling couches for, uh, for one hour uh, between 9 and 10 in the morning, uh, and it's 8.30 right now, and between yeah. 9 and 10 Makes in the morning- a little morning, less obvious, but still, I could see the a argument. couch for $100. Yeah. It's a $2,000 couch for $100, because that's a, just a doorbuster. I mean, it's basically like a, a Thanksgiving, like, a, like right after Thanksgiving, a Black Friday issue, yeah. right? When you have a great deal, and you incite a stampede in the mall, could somebody gets Tough legal issue. I mean, the courts, I'm sure, would look into issues like foreseeability, you know, reasonableness of the conduct. Uh, Yeah, it's which is to say the law would kick the can down the road to every Mm -hmm. individual fact specific case and say, oh, yeah, the standard is reasonableness, which is what you learn in a law school classroom. And then you get into into, a a real courtroom and you say to the judge, oh, the standard is reasonableness. And the judge rolls their eyes and they go, yeah, I know. That means I get to choose what the law means. right? Right. I get to make it up because reasonable doesn't mean anything. So congratulations, Connor. You've improved your batting average on Guess the Verdict. Final segment now. Uh, Now, let me give you the the background of this. Uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, the the big general for D-Day, and then our president wrote a book near the end of his life after writing a bunch of other books. And the book was titled Stories I Like to Tell My Friends. Well, I thought that's a cool title. And so... The title Look of this segment. Got friends. The, the title of this segment we've got is stories I'd tell my friends if I had any. To clarify, I have several stories. So I'm going to lay my uh, my story on you now about my close encounter with O.J. Simpson, and then Connor's going to tell about the case of the juror with the severed foot. So 
I encountered O.J. Simpson a little bit during his murder trial in the 1990s because I was arguing for cameras in the courtroom. And and on one occasion, I was there right next to Johnny Cochran and O.J. Simpson. And there was a HBO did a documentary of that day's events. And and there's a picture. And O.J. looked so bored when I was talking. It's like, can can we get to the part where I'm not guilty? That's what. Let's just jump to the murder. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So so I did have an encounter. But my closer encounter was during uh, his Las Vegas trial, because you remember, you know, 10, 12 years ago, OJ was charged with stealing his own stuff. Yeah. And the fact that he had a couple of henchmen who had a gun or two uh, meant that OJ and several of his pals were convicted. And OJ Simpson was sentenced to prison for for nine months. Well, during the trial in Vegas, uh, unlike uh, the... Uh, the murder trial, he had not been incarcerated. He was free to walk around. And of course, he's dressed up in his fancy suit. So uh, I had a client who was in a, a conference in Las Vegas, and uh, she knew that I was there uh, covering the O.J. Simpson trial for Channel 4. And she said, hey, can you get me in to see the the O.J. Simpson trial in Vegas? Right. I, I got her a pass. And she, she goes in there for the afternoon session. Well, she's sitting near his family, and O.J.'s looking back at the family, and he looks at her. And he doesn't recognize who she is. Well, what's she doing there? And he was kind of interested because she was attractive, blonde. It resembled Nicole a little Interesting. bit. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. His so, type. Yeah, uh, 4, 4.30 comes. The session is over for the day. And so the client comes out, and I'm there. We were going to go have a drink, and she was going to tell me all about uh, what the experience was like watching the trial. And so we're chatting in the hallway outside yeah. the courtroom yeah. up on the third or fourth floor of the courthouse. And what do you know, after we've been chatting a couple of minutes, who comes striding up to say hello in his fancy $3,000 suit, O.J. Simpson, totally ignores me, extends his hand to this (laughs) blonde woman who'd been sitting near his family. And he introduced, oh, I'm O.J. Simpson. Like, yeah, thank you for that. Like, you need to, I'm O.J. Simpson. I'm Lucifer. I knew you were Lucifer. The horns and, (laughs) you know, the cloven hooves. You don't have to introduce yourself. And and the client client is just kind of humming. Yeah. I didn't know quite what to say either. But later on, she was just kicking herself because she's. I should have told him off. Like I'm not going to shake the hand of a double murderer. But what do you do? I mean, if you see him on the street, are you really going to start slapping him around and saying, "Be gone, you double murderer"? <laughs> or are you just going to walk now? Right. You know, it's one thing to take a selfie. Yeah. You know, if you do that, that's that says something about you. But yeah. you know, if you don't, if you don't start yelling and screaming at him, I don't know. What do you do? Yeah, if you, if you see Hitler walking down the I, street, I don't know. I don't think he's. Yeah, I, 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 I. I the answer is not take a selfie. But <laughs> yes. I, I, look, sort of I, minimum, be, uh, it's kind reasonable of similar, behavior. It's kind of a similar, a similar thing. If I saw Mike Pompeo uh, walking down the street, oh, I would react sure, we're equating right? Right. a CIA director right. and Secretary of State would, with a double murder. I would. Nice. I would do the same thing. I would. I would like to think that I'd have the cojones to yell, "Hey, hey, Mike." Uh, like, like with Jeff Goldblum? I don't like you. Exactly. Like with Jeff Goldblum in every interaction. I don't like you. You're a bad guy. You did bad things. And you made our country and our society worse. And that's the same reaction I would do give O.J. Simpson. And maybe, you know, maybe it would sting a little and he would learn his lesson. Yeah. Well, <laughs> from being that, told off by you, Connor as a Karen. You could be taken down by a bodyguard, too. I'd probably not. Yeah. All right. It's Connor's turn now. Uh, yeah. The, this is intriguing, Connor. The so, case of the juror with the severed foot. Case of the juror with the severed foot. Yes. So. 
So uh, I had a jury trial, and this is one of my uh, more exciting uh, voir dire moments. Voir dire is jury selection, the process, if you've ever been on a jury, where you are asked lots of questions. The French people in our audience already knew that. Of course. Ha ha, voir dire. It might be Latin. I don't even know. Um, And uh, and, uh, they ask you lots of questions, and they try to decide, is this person uh, a juror who's not appropriate uh, to be included on the jury for uh, a good reason, for cause? Like, uh, oops, we got the wife of the defendant on the jury. Dang. Uh, we got to get her off of here. Could She's be a basis biased. for appeal by the plaintiff. Yeah, definitely. She's biased, right? She knows one of the people involved, uh, the, the, one of the parties, right? Um, but but it's a spectrum, right? You, If you say, oh, yeah, I saw this. Uh, so you're uh, saying jurors are on the spectrum. <laughs> I saw this guy, that guy walking down the street 10 years ago at the corner of First and Main. Uh, and therefore, I, you know, the one side says they got to be disqualified for cause. No, that's too tenuous a difference, uh, a, 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 an interaction, right? Mm-hmm. So you're asking all these questions to figure out how close these people are to anything involved uh, and to find out if they're somehow uh, unavoidably biased. If you have a case where some Somebody says, uh, uh, you know, where it, it's a malpractice case um, and uh, and uh, the doctor's on trial and your person uh, in voir dire says, uh, oh, yeah, I'm phobic of doctors. I'm so scared of them all the time. I have nightmares about being operated on and waking up in the middle of it and, and I'm in horrible pain and I can't say anything. It's, it's the word my worst phobia. Mm-hmm. They probably are not the appropriate person to be judging. Right. Uh, with the, this is not the trial for them. They can go do a, a battery case or a burglary or something like that. They'll be fine, right? So they get struck from the jury for cause. On the other hand, you have peremptory challenges where jurors are struck because uh, the the lawyers don't think that they'd be a good juror for them. And so they, they boot them off uh, the jury. It's a, they're strategic strikes. They're, they're absolutely, uh, that's the, the purpose of the peremptory strike because people want to um, get a jury that they think is unbiased sure. and is going to be favorable for their clients. Um, so uh, I'm doing voir dire in a car accident case. In a car accident case where uh, uh, two plaintiffs um, uh, are in a car accident, and after the accident, they claim my back hurts, my neck hurts, I couldn't work for a while. Uh, Specifically, they couldn't work for six months. Both the brother and the sister who were driving in the car and who get injured, undisputed, they would get in a car, it's not their fault, the accident happens and they get injured. But they don't want to just take the money that is offered to them uh, and and walk. They want to go for the brass ring and get a big dollar amount. And they say, I couldn't work for six months after this car accident. And it's a car accident. It's serious. But, you know, they went to doctors. Mm-hmm. They got treatment. And everybody goes and does get treatment. And then they you know go back to work and keep burning money. But these folks didn't go for six months. Uh, it turns out the third sibling uh, is their boss uh, at their job, and oh. he's the one who put together all the paperwork. So fishy. Work for six months, so that's why we're in a lawsuit. Is because there's a dispute of facts and credibility is at issue, and that's why we're going to be. So we're doing voir dire, and you're marching through all the jurors. Hey, uh, have you ever been in a car accident? Have you ever been in a car accident? Have you ever been in a car accident? Have you ever had a major injury at work? Have you ever made a major injury at work? And you ask all these people the different questions. How do you feel about the judicial system? How do you feel about cash, uh, uh, you know, payments in compensation for pain and suffering? How do you feel about uh, people who get in car accidents. Do you think everybody gets a car accident and deserves it? And you ask all these questions to elicit a reaction to get, see who this person is, what kind of a person they are. We march through and juror numbers, you know, 32 or whatever. Actually, she was like juror number seven. Uh, she uh, is telling me and I'm, I'm getting all these answers from jurors. Uh, I say, have you ever been in an injury, uh, injured at work? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I have. Uh, what happened? Oh, I, I had sprained my ankle. Oh, OK, well, how, how long were you off work? Uh, a week and a half. 
Oh, what happened? Have you ever been in it? Yeah, I was in an injury. I had an injury at work uh, and I broke my leg. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was out for six weeks in a cast. Um, and uh, we're marching through and I get to one lady and I say, OK, have you ever had uh, a major injury? Um, at, at, and she says, yes, uh, my foot was severed. Woo. I'd say that qualifies as major. Yeah. And I say, oh, my goodness. Um, and uh, was it, you know, did you undergo a surgery afterwards? And she says, yes, it, it was reattached. And I say, oh, my goodness. How long were you off of work after that process? And she says, five weeks. <laughs> as opposed to the six months by the brother and sister. And I inside my head, I'm going, my hands are in the air. I'm cheering. I'm yelling. I'm going, I love this woman. She's the greatest juror of all time. This is somebody who understands that injuries are bad and people get hurt and they need to be compensated for them. But, but, let's there, go, but there's more to the story. I yeah, take let's it. not go crazy, right? Mm -hmm, so this right? is my, she's my star juror. And also, she's got a strong personality. She's sort of forceful and likes speaking up. That's the kind of person who could end up as the four-person of the right. jury. They can steer the direction of conversation. And if your four-person is favorable to you, that's a really good strategic uh, uh, tool. Sure. Right? So that's, I'm thinking this is fantastic. This is going to be great. In fact, I'm thinking in my head, they're going to strike her, right? The other side is going to see this and hear this and think, oh, this lady's got to get kicked off uh, with a peremptory strike. So I'm thinking, okay, I can't get my hopes up too high, right? We make it through voir dire and we make it through uh, the peremptory strikes. I, of course, don't strike her. And the other side also doesn't strike her. They've got a bunch of people that they need to strike that they don't think they're going to be good for their case. And so they use up their peremptory strikes and they, they don't have any left and they can't strike her. And I'm thinking, I love her. She's fantastic. This is going to be so great. She's going to be my four person. She's yeah. going to steer the whole direction of the jury. It's going to be awesome. As Also, as part of that uh, process of, um, of jury selection, we start off with, you know, do you know the defendant, right? As we talked about, do you know the the brother and sister who were in the car accident? Do you know the other guy who was driving the car, Connor's client, who caused the accident, who admits, I caused the accident. We're just here to talk about the medical bills, right? Do you know this guy, right? Do you know anybody else involved in this? And they list off the people who are going to be witnesses. That would be the the, the, the physicians who treated the people uh, and uh, the police officer who wrote the report after the accident, all this stuff. Right? So if a star witness is uh, the father right. of uh, one of the parties, that... Yeah, that would be a big problem. Yeah. So it, we go through this process. Um, pl plaintiff begins their case. Uh, they, they open their case with their opening statement. And in the opening statement, they say, and the testimony of Dr. Hakamzadeh will show that the plaintiffs were very badly injured and they needed you know, treatment and they had to be off work for six months and blah, 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 blah. After his opening statement, uh, my favorite juror in the entire world... <laughs> Cheapishly raises her hand and she says, "Judge, uh, can can I speak to you? Uh, can I speak to you? I have, I have an issue." And so they take all the other jurors out, and the lawyers sit, sit there uh, and they listen. and And she says, uh, "I missed it earlier when you were going through the witnesses, and you listed all the witnesses, and you mentioned that Doctor Hakamzadeh was going to uh, be a witness in this case. I do know Doctor Hakamzadeh." He was the oh, doctor. How do you know him? <laughs> he was the doctor who reattached my foot. Oh my! And, big fan. Big fan. Uh, instantly, the other lawyer and I look at the, the the judge, and the judge says, "I need to talk to you folks in chambers." We mm -hmm. go back into his chambers, into his office, and we're talking. And 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 uh, uh, he says, uh, "The the." Uh, 
other side's lawyer, of course, is going, well, I mean, you know, anybody's can be somebody's doctor. I don't think that means she's going to be biased. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And I'm saying, Judge, Your Honor, we need more questioning. We need to be able to ask about the nature of this relationship. Yeah. If she went to sleep and woke up and somebody later told her we on need, a form, we Dr. need to Hockham banish her this, from the courthouse. That's different. Right. But we need to know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so let's get in there and let's ask questions. The judge says, yes, yes. OK, Connor, you can ask questions. So we go back in there. Well, I said, Mr. Oaks, of course, <laughs> judges call me Mr. Too, Oaks. Too personal. So we go out there and uh, I start asking questions uh, of her. Uh, first, actually, plaintiff's counsel gets up and he starts asking all these softball questions. Uh, <laughs> you can be unbiased, right? I mean, you could be totally uh, neutral in this case, even though you have some vague connection to the <laughs> doctor. Vague you've heard his life-saving name. Life-saving right? connection. Right? And she's saying, well, I think I could be fair. I think. And, and so then I get up and I say, OK. What was the nature of your relationship with Dr. Hakamzadeh? Uh, and she just comes right out and says, oh, my gosh, Dr. Hakamzadeh saved me. I went to nine other doctors Ooh. who all said you so can't a miracle save worker. the foot. Oh We've got to amputate. And then the 10th doctor was Dr. Hakamzadeh. And he said, I'm going to save your foot. You're going to walk again. And she did. <laughs> she went with him and he saved her foot. And then, oh, Dr. Hakamzadeh and I actually, we, we worked in the same hospital. And so Dr. Hakamzadeh would send his nurses to spy on me and make sure I wasn't walking on the foot. I was keeping wow. it elevated because he was worried about me and he wanted to protect my foot. So you'll always be really grateful to him, won't you? <laughs> and I'm, I'm over there, and I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And inside, I'm now tearing my hair out, screaming, going, no, no! So we go back into chambers, and the other, the, the lawyer for the other side has the audacity to, to even put up any defense at all. And he's going, well, you know, when she was talking to me, she seemed, seemed like she could really... Really be, really be neutral. I, I think, think she's a, a superhuman robot. Right. I mean, and so I say, Judge, come on. If you had to construct a hypothetical scenario, which was the worst possible hypothetical scenario where a juror could, could not be more biased in favor of a witness, it would be the doctor who reattached their limb and saved their life. Where after nine, after nine out, others. Yeah, right nine now. out of ten doctors said, no, I can't save you. And this one did. There's no more extreme scenario. You have to kick her off. So we I'm guessing. The judge did the right thing. For a reason. Yes. And the judge said, you're right, Connor. Uh, Mr. Oaks, Connie, uh, and he tousled my hair. And he said, uh, yeah, okay, she's gone. Uh, we got to boot her. We got alternates for a reason. I love it. Well, so the jury system does work. It works. Every once, every in, a once while. in a while. Hey, everybody have a great week, and we'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. 